Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, September 29th. So most of you probably know at least the basics by now of the current uprising in Iran. A 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini was detained by police for improper wearing of a headscarf and then died in police custody. There has since been unrest in many places around that country. State media says 41 people have been killed, including protesters and police. The BBC quotes a human rights group saying more than 70 protesters have been killed just this morning, just a little while ago. As the BBC reports, Iran's president warned that he will not accept chaos, he used the word chaos, as authorities continue to crack down on protests, which also means that after many days already, the protests are continuing and the issue of women's rights is not simply dying down. With us now is someone with personal experience with Iran's so-called morality police. She is Pardis. Madavi, an Iranian-American who is provost of the University of Montana and author of the book, Passionate Uprisings, Iran's Sexual Revolution. She also wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post this week, maybe some of you have seen it, called When Iran's Morality Police Came for Me. We'll hear that story. Provost Madavi, thanks very much for joining us at this intense moment and potential turning point in history, I dare say. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little about yourself first for some context for our listeners? We don't usually say Iran and Montana in the same breath. (laughs) That's absolutely right. Um, I am an Iranian-American. My parents uh, left, uh, fled Iran during the revolution. uh, And I was uh, born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, and uh, grew up in Southern California. We moved there in the 1980s um, after my father faced um, some incidents of uh, xenophobia during the Iran hostage crisis in Minnesota. Um, So I grew up mostly in Southern California where there are far more uh, Iranians. Um, I grew up just outside of uh, what we call Tehranjalis or Los Angeles. Um, And uh, I then pursued a course of study. Uh, I pursued diplomacy and world affairs initially because I wanted to be the bridge between my two home countries, Iran and America. Um, uh, After finishing my undergraduate work, I then went on to Columbia University to, to pursue a master's in international affairs. Uh, and then actually um, began writing stories about Iranian youth. Uh, I went back to, I traveled back to Iran in the late 90s um, and, and was fascinated to, to note that not only was there, you know, a, a burgeoning feminist movement, but I, I started engaging with young people who were, you know, at the time, my age, we were all children of the revolution, all born 1978, 79, 1980. Um, and sexual revolution or Angelobagency in Persian. Um, And I became fascinated by this youth movement where young people were speaking back to a regime that had come to power under a fabric of morality um, by using their own bodies to gradually chip away at that morality framework. Uh, And, you know, I became absolutely uh, uh, fascinated by this movement and inspired by the work they were doing and returned to Colombia, decided to, 
to pursue actually my PhD in anthropology, in medical anthropology, because I wanted to study the intersections of sexuality and politics. And back in the early 2000s, that was the only way to do it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I pursued the, my PhD. I did dissertation fieldwork uh, in Iran. So I, I basically spent more of my time in, in Iran between uh, 1999 and 2007 than I did in the United States. I was doing on-the-ground research on Iran's sexual revolution uh, and then wrote my first book, which uh, was Passionate Uprisings, Iran's Sexual Revolution. Um, and that book, of course, got me into a bit of hot water in, in 2007. Um, uh, when I was presenting the preliminary results of my fieldwork at Tehran University and 13 minutes into my lecture, uh, the auditorium doors banged open, the morality police uh, came stomping in and pulled me off stage. So the first line of your article is, the morality police came for me exactly 13 minutes into my lecture on gender and sexual politics in post-revolutionary Iran. So you started to tell this story a minute ago. Tell us more. Where where, and when exactly were you giving that lecture? Yeah, it was the summer of 2007, and I was at, uh, in Tehran. And I was just putting the finishing touches uh, after eight years of on-the-ground uh, ethnographic fieldwork in cities including Tehran, Shiraz, Esfahan and Mashhad, where my father's family lives. Um, I had done eight years of on-the-ground fieldwork following what young people described as Iran's sexual revolution, and and actually had been writing quite a lot about the morality police, um, and and really thinking about how this sexual revolution um, could lead to a civil rights type movement, uh, and and we saw that in, in you know just a few years later in two thousand nine in the green movement, and of course that's what we're seeing on the streets of Iran today. But but to back up to to that you know, very pivotal moment in my own life, you know, I was, I was just beginning to share the results of my research. Uh, my, uh, my interlocutors and my friends, my family were quite adamant. And I, I agreed that, you know, I should present the results of, of the research in Iran, that, 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 that was the right thing to do. And I should note here, Brian, that I, I began my research um, under President Khatami. Um, a much more uh, uh, reformist, progressive ruler. And when I first started doing my fieldwork, I had the opportunity to work with the Ministry of Education, with the Ministry of Health. Uh, and I was, I, you know, I had quite a lot of uh, freedom of movement. By 2007, of course, as you know, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad had been elected a, a few years prior, and things had started to turn. And, you know, as I look back on the decision to to present my research in Tehran in 07, I, I do, you know, of course, uh, the, the Monday morning quarterbacking, I do ask myself, what was I thinking? Why, why, why did I think I could present the results? But I also wanted to be fair and true to those who had opened up their hearts and their stories to me at great risk to themselves. So it I, sounds I, like you knew you were putting yourself in some kind of danger by even giving that lecture. Absolutely. I, I did. Um, and, and yet, Brian, if, if you would ask me, would I, would I do it again? Would I still publish that book? Would I still say what I said and write what I wrote? Absolutely, I would. I think so it was the So the right auditorium do. doors swung open, you write, and? And I can't remember if I saw or smelled or heard them first. But I, I, I can still remember the sound of boots clanking um, and a, a whole different 
you know, sensory, the, the auditorium had smelled like rosin and rose water and suddenly it erupted in all different types of scents and pandemonium ensued. And uh, I should have been shredding my lecture notes. That's what I should have been doing. But I mm. was frozen, just gripping the podium um, uh, until uh, a few of them walked up, you know, the four set, the four stairs up to the stage and, and pulled me off. And, and then I, I, I blacked out. So you were either knocked unconscious or out of fear and anxiety or whatever. You blacked out. How hurt were you? Not, not physically. And, and this is what I often underscore. People say, well, were you, were you hurt physically? No. Um, I think in my case, it was much more emotional. And I always say, and I will say it again, uh, I was one of the lucky ones. Um, my friend and colleague, uh, Hale Esfandiari, had been arrested that same summer, and she was held in a Veen prison uh, in solitary for months and months and months. And she faced uh, far more um, you know, brutality at the hands of, of the uh, interrogators and torturers in Evin. So I, I do consider myself one of the lucky ones, Brian. I think it's important that I say that. In your op-ed, you called the men who detained you thugs. Were they official agents of the government? So I think this is what's interesting. The The government has several different arms of the police. And so when the Islamist regime came to power, they replaced um, the, you know, what they had been critiquing as, as the brutal Savak police under the Shah, they replaced with a number of, they replaced um, the, their police with a number of different arms. One was the Revolutionary Guard. And I think that's who most people outside of Iran are familiar with is the, is the Revolutionary Guard. But they also created another arm and that was the morality police. And the morality police are charged with, and here's the technical uh, definition, they're charged with committing right and forbidding wrongs. Okay, and and their charge is to ensure that the morality of the population of Iran is upheld by, for example, policing what women wear. Are they wearing proper Islamic uh, uh, outerwear? And and I would actually say, uh, Brian, that it's not just women. They also police men. So, you know, young men who were seen with, you know, eye catching hairstyles, mohawks or faux hawks. Um, mm. You know, these young men were also police people who, you know, people who had eye catching jewelry and accessories. Um, they also walked the streets looking for unmarried couples who might be engaging in immoral behavior, holding hands, um, making out in the park. Uh, and, and then eventually, you know, they disguised as plainclothesmen and, and would often raid parties uh, and and raves and, you know, um, various uh, immoral, you know, quote unquote, immoral quote gatherings. Unquote. Yeah. Let's take a phone call. Mondana in Westchester. You're on WNYC with the provost of the University of Montana, Pardis Madavi. Mondana, am I saying your name right? Yes. Yes, correct. Hi, Brian. Hi, Pardis. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I want to start with answering your one of your questions, and then we get to the other question. You mm -hmm. asked what the fellow Ameri you know, Americans can do. I want to say to my fellow Americans, I need you to email, call your senators and representatives, ask them to uh, cut diplomatic ties with this uh, terrorist regime of Islamic Republic. Uh, U.S. is a leader, so this time they should act as a leader and be the first one to cut ties, diplomatic ties. 
that we show that the United States is supporting this freedom movement, this revolution that people are, um, it's happening in Iran. Uh, please do that. Uh, can I, can one I thing ask you I can guarantee up, my fellow Americans. Go ahead, Mondana. Let me, just one more sentence. One more thing that I can um, promise my fellow Americans is that the free Iran, Democratic Republic of Iran, will be uh, will uh, open doors to um, atomic energy uh, agency personnel to come in and inspect and remove whatever uh, stuff nuclear stuff is there mm-hmm. and uh, Iranian people do not want atomic one we don't want any of that so that would be the f- one of the first things that is going to happen so my fellow American we don't need to keep this government, terrorist government, to negotiate with them. We can get rid of them, just to stand on the side of the people, and we will have, you will not have to worry about an atomic uh, bomb uh, in Middle East. So uh, you would so, say, okay, no, you would ahead, say while, this, while this struggle for human rights is going on there, no nuclear agreement with Iran. That's what you're saying, right? Uh, I am saying exactly no negotiations. Just uh, they are not legitimate government. The last election, only three percent of the people voted for this president who came to the United Nations a few weeks ago. Three percent of the people do not represent the entire country of um, 86 million people. This government is not a legitimate government. Uh, Biden administration should, ha- should not have been negotiating with an illegitimate government to start with. So no. that now that people want to change the government, it's another uh, saying that this is illegitimate. This is this I, government I, is not representing. Us. Don't negotiate Ma- with them. Mandana, thank you so much. Please call us again. Um, well, there's a dilemma, Pardis, if mm-hmm. you ask progressives in this country generally are you for women's rights and against um, headscarf laws and all of that? Obviously, yes. And if you ask, are you for uh, re-entering a nuclear weapons or yeah, nuclear weapons agreement with Iran that Trump pulled us out of, they probably would also say yes, for the most part. For yeah. that listener, at least, Iranian-American, the two things clash. What about for you? You know, I'm actually glad that Mandana brought that up and thank you for calling us. Um, you know, it, it is it is interesting to think about the fact that, yes, that there have been these ongoing uh, conversations. Now, of course, we've seen examples in the past historically, you know, during the Cold War, where governments still, you know, engaging in some negotiations um, with Russia. Yes. But but I actually I think that Mandana has a really good point that, you know, there, there may be a time for those those negotiations. This is not that time, right? Hmm. Now the time is for the United States and the world to stand with the people of Iran. Uh, and and so you know it's it's not to say that we don't have to worry about about the nuclear issue, um, but I think that now is the time for us to focus on the people and how we can support the people of Iran at this absolutely pivotal moment. Let's take another phone call. Tara in Pennington, New Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Tara. Uh, good morning, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say that we, I'm calling, um, even though I'm here, but all my family are in Iran. So uh, we are feeling that and we are with the people of Iran. So my brothers every night go to the street and, and they know and they, they feel the fear 
I'm sorry I've been so emotional. I know it's emotional. But obviously. I just want to say it's okay. But I want just to say we want to get rid get rid of this regime. Middle East and whole world will be a safer place without these terrorist people. We want Western countries to stop negotiating with these people. These are not representative of our people. They have to call the ambassadors from, from my country. They have to close the embassies in my country. They have to cut all the ties with this terrorist group. We want to get rid of them. And we will stay to end. How, Tara? How will that regime be toppled? When, when people are saying the street, they voice at the end of it, no matter how long does it take, even Gandhi when, with one person and started the movement, if we stay together, we would get, get rid of this government. It doesn't, it's, it's not going to be easy. They, they kill so many people, they will kill more. But we, if we stay together, if we have support from Western countries, if human rights is really matters for, for Western countries, then it will, it, this movement will get to the end. Pardis, do you there is wanna, no other choice. Do you want to talk to Tara at all or ask her any absolutely. questions? Hi, hi, Tara, June. Thank you so much for calling. And I, I can absolutely hear the, the pain in your voice. And I want you to know it resonates with me. I think, you know, so many Iranian Americans, like myself, like my parents, they have been hoping and hoping for 44 years now that, that this regime will somehow be removed so we can also so we can go home. So we can go see our families. And Tara, I don't know about you, but, you know, in, in, in my case, especially in the last three years when COVID hit Iran so hard and I've 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 lost family members and I can't go back to their I can't go home for their funeral. I, we can't go home. And so I know that part of the pain in your voice is the pain of exile. And I want to say that that's something that that I feel, too. Thank you for sharing your voice on this show. And this is why we take callers, folks, right? This is why we don't just talk to experts and journalists and academics, even though our guest is an academic. Uh, <laughs> she also has the personal experience, as described in her article, when Iran's morality police came for me. We get to hear people's lived experiences, like Tara's from Pennington. And it's... Uh, it's much better that way, and it's it's yeah. you know much more real. Um, so, to what she was talking about, the last line of your op-ed is, "No country, no matter how long it tries, can repress its citizens forever." What yeah. gives you hope that this will change, and how? You know, Brian, I think that that what we're seeing now, one of the things that's giving me so much hope is the fact that the international community is speaking about it, is talking about it. You and I are here this morning talking about it. We have callers calling in, thanking you for, for amplifying their voices. You know, when I started working on, on the youth movements and the protests, you know, young women like Masa Amini were being pulled off the streets and, you know, uh, uh, threatened and, and hurt by the morality police. And it wouldn't even make the papers you know, outside of Iran. It, rarely would it make the papers inside of Iran because the press is so tightly controlled, right? Um, mm -hmm. And now, now we're in this different moment where Masa Amini's name is known throughout the world 
And, and everyone is, you know, more and more people around the globe are, are looking at Iran, are talking about Iran and are saying, we are, we stand with you. That the, in, the attention of the international community is what gives me hope, Brian. The fact that you and I are having this conversation today, that gives me hope. One more listener comment, then we're out of time. This one on Twitter. Listener writes, protest in Iran changed the corrupt rule of the Shah. So these protests could change the rule of these religious zealots. You agree? Can the government be brought down? Can democracy be established in Iran through mostly peaceful protests in the streets if they're big enough? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is this is why some of us are cautiously optimistic at this moment. And I think that, you know, while some may have initially thought, uh, you know, that what we saw in the protests on the streets of Iran in, the, in these last um, uh, several days resembled the protests of 2018, I actually would argue that it, it does remind me more of 1978 and 1979. The, the fervor, the numbers, the widespread nature of these protests does does have a pretty strong echo of of the 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 revolution that um, ousted the Shah. Um, so I think that is that is cause for us looking at things differently, and and it is cause for hope. Perhaps at a turning point in history, we thank Pardis Madavi, provost of the University of Montana and author of the book Passionate Uprisings: Iran's Sexual Revolution. And maybe you saw her recent op-ed in the Washington Post called When Iran's Morality Police Came for Me. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.